Good morning. Last time I was here, I had the privilege of being involved in your dedication service. That was one of the highlights of my year. It was just awesome. And so, uh, so it's just a, a delight to be back. And, and uh, Peter introduced me as, as uh, Greg's friend. And I asked Betty in between services, and she's agreed also to be my friend. Uh, so, so I'm very thankful, uh, thankful to be here. And uh, I'd like to ask you to stand. Instead of praying over you this morning, I'd like to read the Word of God, which is living and active and powerful. And I'm going to read the Word of God over you, and I'd like you to receive this Word. And I'd like you to th- listen with your spirit, and I call your spirit to attention to receive this, and I want you to go, that's me, all right? As you hear this, you, that's about me. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power has granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. For by these He has granted to you His precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you may become partakers of His divine nature. In order that by them you may become partakers of His divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Can you receive that? All right, you may be seated. Let's talk about God's agenda this morning. What does God want? And maybe more specifically, what does God want from you? Uh, Recite with me, if you can, this well-known scripture, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Altogether, that whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. In Matthew 5.13, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. In verse 14, He says, you are the light of the world. So what does God want? He wants us to save the world. So I don't know what you were thinking about this morning when you got up and decided to come to church. I did not have a plan for global salvation. That was not what I was thinking. I was nervous about stepping into Pastor Greg's pulpit because I hope you realize how spoiled you are. Do you realize how spoiled you are to have Pastor Greg and Betty here? And so I'm a little intimidated because, you know, I I don't want to, you know, be way down there. But... um, but Jesus, God has a global plan for salvation this morning, and he, he hasn't read me in on every detail of it everywhere, but the dynamic history of the book of Acts is exactly how God has answered this question for you and I this morning. And we're going to go looking in our text, which is Acts chapter 5, and beginning in verse 12, we're going to pick up where Pastor Greg left off, and we're going to learn what God wants from us, all right? Now, before we dive into this, um, I think 
having a scope of, of, of scale gives us a perspective on what's happening. And sometimes when we read the scripture, we're only hearing the narrative of, of what God is saying between the main participants, and we don't understand the scope and scale. So if I was to ask one of you, would you be willing to share some of your faith testimony with some of the youth here at the Father's house? How many of you would say, yeah, sure, I could do that. I just share some of the lessons I've learned along the way, some of the mistakes I've made. And, uh, but what if I said, well, actually, it's not just the youth of, of, of the Father's house. It's the collected youth of Sturgeon County. There's going to be about 250 kids here. How many of you would think twice? <laughs> Who would still do it? All right? Okay. But it's actually a little bigger than that. I just didn't want to scare you at first. It's actually going to be at Roger's place, and there's going to be 17,000 youth from all over Canada. Now, would you be willing to share your story? Okay. Now, I was just softening you up for the real thing, because if I could get you this far, maybe you'll agree to be the keynote speaker at an international youth event hosted at Commonwealth Stadium. There'll be 50,000 kids from all over the world, and it'll be simulcast to the whole world. How many of you might have bailed before we got to that point? That would make me nervous. That, that would scare me, the, just the, the weight of it, the importance of it. But we can easily miss the scope of the dynamic environment of the Bible when we don't understand the scale. And so in Acts chapter 5, verse 12, it says, At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. The, the drama of early Acts has been playing out in the newly, and I mean newly, what, few decades before Jesus arrived. And so by this time, the temples, the new second temple has been completed for about 40 or 50 years. And uh, a project of this scope could only happen in a city with serious economic clout, with, with a big population, and with a huge amount of infrastructure. Jerusalem at that time was about 200,000 people living in the city, and there was a lot of communities surrounding. And during times, peak times like festivals and so on at the temple, this place was just teeming and crowded with people. To give us a sense of, of what it was, the, the temple had been expanded under Herod's uh, 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 construction project, and he built these huge retaining walls and filled all the void and made one great big huge flat court. To give us a perspective of that, how many of you have been to Commonwealth Stadium? That stadium seats about 50,000 people. The whole property that that sits on is about 45 acres. This court alone was three quarters the size of that whole property. 35 and a half acres was the temple court. You can see the size of it. Now, if we go to the second picture, you get a sense of the scale. Look at the highway going by and how tiny the cars are on the very front corner of that, of that, that those walls they built. This was all just before the time of Jesus. And so, this is a very, very impressive thing, and it's brand new. And so, uh, in, in Mark chapter 13, when Jesus and his disciples come into Jerusalem, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, behold, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. They were awed by what they had built. And so, this place was just overwhelmingly impressive. This was a major league stadium in the, one of the most religious cities of the world. If I could use the analogy, this was the big leagues. This was as big as it gets, and Jerusalem is still the center of religious 
for many religions in the world, right? So it's just a huge, powerful place. In loose association, that courtyard could easily accommodate 100,000 people. But when it was packed, it would be nearly half a million. 400,000 people could pack into that courtyard. And so it, when we uh, look at Acts 5.42, it says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, the apostles kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. That's what they were doing there. Peter and John are not backstreet preachers. They're not some soapbox on a corner preachers. Uh, by Acts 4.4, their numbers of the church had risen to, to 5,000, and that's rivaling crowds now that Jesus was drawing together that, that Peter referred to earlier, uh, that Jesus, when he fed the 5,000. So these, these, they have massive crowds, and Peter and John are preaching there. They were bold, they were missional, and they were committed to the mandate that Jesus had given them, the command of Christ to go out and save the world. And they were successfully advancing the kingdom of God. And so this, this was very powerful. The gospel in the hands of the Spirit-filled church was a freight train that was rumbling through the centerpiece of Old Testament Judaism. It was going right through the middle of the temple. And so when Paul was before King Agrippa in Acts 25, Paul would say to the king now, for the king knows about these matters. I am persuaded that none of these things have escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. <laughs> no, they were right in the middle of Main Street. They were making sure. So if we go back to our test, Luke gives us a summary of how powerful this is. Oh, I forgot to mention, uh, uh, did you show the graphic of uh, Solomon's portico? So Solomon's portico is in this main big court, and uh, you can see it on the front side. It's actually this part. But those pillars are 39 feet tall when you look at the, that wall around the outside, and this thing is, is 50 feet wide. So they're right in the middle of a courtyard. It's open air, but they're, I mean, so they're gathering, and, and the church the, the churches, people are being saved, they're gathering, and that's where Peter and John are preaching and then getting arrested and then preaching and getting arrested, preaching and getting arrested. They keep going back, right? They know exactly where to find them. Uh, you know, when, when, when uh, speaking of, 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 of getting arrested, that was done by the temple court guard. Uh, the Sanhedrin had a guard. They, and, and when Pastor Greg and I went to the hockey game last night, by the way, whoever donated those tickets, thank you very much. It was my first time to be in that building and watch Connor McDavid. And so it was really fun. But, you know, we couldn't get in there. I had to empty my pockets. They scanned us. We went through scanners. They had security. And there was security standing everywhere. Well, in every big stadium, there's security. The temple guards were the guys who would run them in. And they knew exactly where to find them. They were stationed right in Solomon's portico. And, uh, okay, so let's go back to Acts 5 and read verse 13. But now, uh, sorry, but none of the rest of, of the believers dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow... <laughs> Are you kidding? At least a shadow might fall on any of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. So it reminds us of the early days of Jesus, doesn't it? In Mark chapter 1, it says they began bringing to Jesus all who were ill and those who were demon-possessed, and the whole city gathered at the door. And this reminds me of Jesus' words. Truly, truly, I say to you, 
He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. How many of you here believe in Jesus? The works that I do, you will do also. You are the salt. You are the light. And greater works than he, these he will do because I go to my Father. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But imagine, healing from a shadow seems too fantastic to be true. Well, it's not the first time things like this had happened. Do you remember a woman who just wanted to touch the hem of the garment of Jesus? And she was healed. So this power of God that resided in Jesus is now residing in these guys. A shadow, are you kidding me? Those healed would become the evangelists, telling everyone their testimony of how they'd been set free or healed by the power of God, standing on legs that for 41 years had never worked. They'd never learned to walk. They, he had never, his brain had never processed. You know that learning to walk is a, is a process of the brain mapping it out and it becoming, you know, learning balance. And, it, it's, it's, and he, they just pulled him to his feet and he, he was completely healed and reprogrammed. His brain was programmed to walk. Spectacular. So there are two things that are happening in this text. There's the release of tremendous spiritual power and there are people getting saved. There are people who are coming to God. Even if you weren't spiritually inclined, these public showdowns, these, these things between Paul, Peter and John and the temple court and the Sanhedrin, this was dramatic stuff. I mean, you could, you could go and watch. Now, I'm not sure where Ananias and Sapphira were struck down. It's likely it was a house church, but what if it was at Solomon's portico? Because it doesn't really say. Imagine if that happened at the temple. Whoa. So these are extraordinary expressions of God's favor and power and the undeniable evidence of God at work. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? I see the evidence of His goodness all over my life. And they were seeing the evidence of God's goodness and power. Like a prairie wildfire on a windy day, the people are streaming back to the temple in a wave of faith with expectation that God is about to do something. Little wonder the Sanhedrin felt that they needed to crack down on this thing. And of course, that's the pattern that we see throughout the book of Acts. But there's some very interesting things in the text that I think we can learn some little lessons from as we go along this journey. In verse 12, it says they were together in one accord. Uh, don't forget what just happened, Ananias and Sapphira, right? Now, if last Sunday, if last Sunday you heard that somebody was struck down, Michaela was struck down for egging the youth pastor for that sin of, of whatever in her life, and, and she attacked the youth pastor, and God judged her and struck her dead, and they hauled her out. Now, if you knew that that happened last Sunday, how many of you would be doing a little spiritual inventory at home just before you showed up this morning? You know, if there was any little shady attitude thing going on, you know, you get that straightened out before you show up at that church, lest you be next on the list. You can bury you out in the vegetable garden beside Michaela. <laughs> But here's what happens when that happens. The church begins to fear and recognize the power of God, but they also humble themselves in repentance. And that's a part we can't lose. So these are a humble people with a, with a reverent fear of God. And I think that's a really good thing. I think that should mark us as the people of God. In verse 13, uh, there's an interesting thing that happens. And that's that people begin to fear Peter and John. They, they fear to associate with them. And, and we have this this kind of normal human thing, weakness, I call it hero worship. 
Are, are you familiar with hero worship? Like, welcome to the Marvel universe, right? We all want to be superheroes and have superpowers. And, but we even do that spiritually, don't we? We kind of have our superheroes of the faith. And we want to run from one place where there's a revival to another place where there's a revival because we want to get a little bit of whatever is going on there. And there must be some special anointing, so we want to go and get a piece of that. And, but folks, can I say that the God who does all of these things and who starts all these miracles and who starts all these revivals, the same Holy Spirit that started all that is the Spirit of God who is inhabiting your worship this morning. You know, when two or three of us agree together, when two or three of us come together to worship the Lord, the Bible says God inhabits those praises. It inhabits that worship and that prayer. And the same Spirit of God who moves in power anywhere else in the world can move in power here at the Father's house at any given moment. At any given moment. But we, we, we want to we wanna shirt tail some. So, I mean, if we think of great ministries, we think of like Billy Graham and Reinhard Bunke and, you know, the old healing evangelists, Oral Roberts and Catherine Kuhlman. I think of, of you know, people who are my own heroes within my own life, Glenn and Lois Forsberg, yeah. you know? If only I could just, you know, sit at the feet of Glenn and Lois Forsberg. You're so fortunate to have them here. I'm just, yeah, they're, they've been a fixture and an example. And Greg and Betty Forsberg. What a, ooh. I can just feel like standing in the same place that Greg Fraser stands on Sunday mornings. Like just like, oh, the hair on the back of my neck is, because <laughs> there's no hair anywhere else. It's just on the back of my neck. But you want to know what I've learned about these great men and women of God through the course of my life? And that's that. They're just people. You know, the same thing, the same thing would happen to, to Paul when he was preaching. He, he went to a city, and, and they were very Greek. It was a very Gentile community. And they healed a lame man similar, healed a lame man. And, and the, the citizens thought, oh, these are the voices of the gods. And they thought, they thought of their Greek gods. This is Hermes and, and Zeus come down from the heavens among us. And they tried to worship them. And, and Paul would say, no, no, no. The same thing Greg would say. The same thing Pastor Glenn would say. The same thing any true servant of God would say. Don't worship us. We are just people. We're just people like you through whom God is moving. And see, this is the beauty of it. Now, I think sometimes we have a little bit of a spiritual inferiority complex. We think that, that God only moves through someone if they have a special calling, if they've had a special event or, or something where some God puts some unique... But aren't we thinking Old Testament when we think like that? We're thinking like the Old Testament prophets or, or Joshua who had a unique anointing to lead the people you know, into the promised land. And we, we think of how the Spirit would come and settle. But here was the, here was the dramatic change. Here was the, this epic shift from Old Testament thinking that God is trying to impart to the New Testament church. And that's that the way you used to relate to God, the way you used to think of the way I move, it's changed now. Now... All of God's people are called. All of God's people are anointed. All of the people were filled at Pentecost. You know that Pentecost is not a, is not a theology. It's not a denomination. Pentecost is God's plan for saving the world. That He would put His Spirit into the people of God and they would become the salt and the light of the earth. 
It's not just for the Pentecostals. It's not just for the Charismatics. It's for every faith. We need the power of God in us to change the world. And that's what God is doing. But this is hard for us to grasp. How many of you find it hard to believe that the creator of the universe, Jesus who came to the earth as a man and died and rose again, that, that you have his power in you? How many of you just find that that's just a little bit hard to get a hold of? How many of you feel like you have that power? Yeah, I, I don't. One of the most intimidating verses in scripture is when Paul says, I don't come to you with persuasive words, with, with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I look at my life and go, good Lord, help my church. <laughs> There's not nearly enough of a demonstration of the Spirit's power in my life. But how many of you yearn for it? You long for more. You know there's more. You've read the Scriptures. Maybe you've come here this morning. You don't even know God yet, but you've come here. Why are you here? I believe God's calling you. You're watching online. God's calling you. And you're hoping, you're hoping that this message that we preach is true. Philippians 2 says, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And Acts 5.14 says the result, the purpose for the signs and wonders is the demonstration of the love of God. The invitation to the greatest miracle of all is to eternal life, to salvation. The reclaiming of the God-ordained destiny of humanity that we would be with him. It would be have friendship with God, communion with God. And when we make the signs, the miracles, what we seek, we actually undermine the very purpose of them. We don't just want miracles. We want to see people come to know and have a relationship with God. And so Romans 5 reminds us that God demonstrates His love for us. He demonstrates His love. That's what the signs are for. He does it because He loves us. Why would God heal you and make your life better? Because He loves you. Why would God heal that relationship? Because He loves you and He loves the person you're in relationship. Why would God heal your marriage? Because He loves your family and your kids. Why would God do it? Because He loves you. Because He wants you to have love and joy and peace in your life. And He wants you to know that relationship with Him too. In verse 15 and 16, these are just phenomenal levels of faith and power, the presence of God manifesting. And when God moves, there's expectation and there's hope. And so people are coming from surrounding places into the temple to, to see, to experience, to find this hope. And even the kings in their palaces know what's going on. So there's two things going on here. There's a super and natural partnership and their salvation. By the way, what part of the supernatural are you? What part are you? You're the natural. You just have to be you. God's not asking you to be anything other than you. Being Greg is good enough. John Maxwell used to say, all you can do is all you can do, but all you can do is enough. It's enough for God because God plus you is anything that is needed because he brings the anything. So here we are. He is super and you are natural. And, and so when God wants to interact with people, with humanity, he loves to come face to face with us. 
And so even in the Old Testament, God would appear at many times to different servants and he'd call them and talk to them. You can read throughout the, the Old Testament, there are theophanies over and over again where God is coming down and meeting with people and he puts an anointing on them. That was that Old Testament pattern. He puts his spirit on them and they can do amazing things for him. But the best example of it of, of them all is Jesus. God comes face to face with humanity in Jesus. He is God incarnate. We sing, we sing Christmas carols. I love Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Do you know that one? Okay, do you know the verse? Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Come on, Christmas isn't that far away, right? 274 days if anyone's counting. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus our Emmanuel. Hark the herald angels sing. It's always time to sing Christmas songs, isn't it? <laughs> Glory to the newborn king. What are we singing? We are singing God's strategy. I come face to face with you, God incarnate, in carnal form, in human form, filled with the Spirit of God. Does it remind you of Acts 2, the dove coming down as Jesus is baptized? He's our pattern. He's the example. God coming face to face with humanity. And that's phase one. He sends Jesus. But phase one and coming to Jesus, Him opening the door of salvation makes possible the union between us and God. And so now Jesus in you unlocks phase two. Oh, I wish I'd have said that in the first service. That was good. I'm like almost a rapper. <laughs> Except I'm short and white and old and I can't dance. <laughs> Think of Lazarus. Here's Lazarus. He was dead. He was buried. And, and he's locked in the tomb, and his body is rotting, and Jesus shows up late on purpose, and what does his sister say? Lazarus' sister say, don't open it. Why? He's going to stink. <laughs> he's going to smell bad. But Jesus calls him out anyway. He says, roll the stone away. Let, let him out. Loose him on time. Do you think he smelled of the stink? I kind of doubt it. No, there was no rot left in him. There was life in him. I wonder if Lazarus had to do like speaking tours. You know, I went to heaven and here's what I saw. You know, those, I don't, I don't know. But you know what I do think about Lazarus? I think that for the rest of his days, he was known as he's the guy Jesus raised. I think that's, that would have been Lazarus' calling card. And everybody would always want to know, what was it like? Wouldn't, wouldn't you? What if you met Lazarus? First question, seriously, dude, you were dead. What was that like? <laughs> did you hear his voice? Like, did you hear it or did you just wake up and what happened? Could you breathe when they had the things wrapped around your head? Like, was it really spicy? What? I mean, I've got questions. I have an investigative mind. So I want to, but do you think Lazarus got out of any conversation without being interrogated about that experience? So here's my question. Lazarus was the one Jesus was raised from the dead. That's what he was known for. What are you and I known for? We've been raised from the dead too, right? God's given us life out of death. It's spectacular. Is the old gone? Has the new arrived in you? How many of you are different from the person you used to be before Jesus took over your life? I mean, that's what, that's what the world should see. That's what they should know. And I read that passage over you, and this is my prayer, that you would begin to see this, this partnership that God has invited you into in a new and dynamic way, filtered through the life and the experience of the people of the book of Acts. You are partakers of His divine nature, divine DNA in you. 
the very stuff of God in you. Second Corinthians says, you are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Do this. On this heart, God has written. On this heart, He's imprinted. He's established. DNA, the supernatural partnership that He's cultivated with you. And suddenly there came a noise from heaven, a violent rushing wind, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. And God impressed the DNA of heaven into them. And they were changed. Timid Peter, who denied Jesus, now preaching boldly in Solomon's portico in the center of the religious universe and getting in trouble for it and not scared, going back over and over again. That's a different man. That's a different man. And that's what you and I are. The connection makes us a conduit from heaven for whatever the Lord wants to download into our world, into our neighborhood, into our household, the supernatural partnership produced in this text, miracles, deliverances, healings, salvation. The presence of God manifest. So that's all raw, raw, right? Isn't that great? It's good stuff. But if I turn you loose into the world and you go out, and go out into the world, I wonder if you'll still feel the same. <laughs> you go out into your world this week and you start rubbing shoulders with the world. I mean, let's face it. Jesus is now risen. He's ascended. Everyone has heard the stories. But I doubt that his generation was any less skeptical or cynical than ours. Right? Sure, we remember you guys tagging along with Jesus. Doesn't mean I'm going to listen to you. <laughs> you didn't raise from the dead. I'm not even sure that really happened. So tell me, show us. Why should we join you? You aren't Jesus. And what's changed since then? Nothing. The Bible says that to the unbelieving, their hearts are blinded by the God of this world. So it's not just ignorance or stubbornness. There's actual spiritual boundaries there that are hard to break through. And, and you don't break through that with natural tools. You need spiritual tools. You need to be a spiritual. You need that God DNA in us, that authority from God to be able to reach this world, to save it, right? And so this world is cynical. But think of the question we're asking today. Should we expect any less from people? We are asking people to believe in Jesus, to completely change their lives, change their priorities, maybe have to change their associations and friendships, their spending patterns, the way they socialize, the way they enjoy pleasure, what they do for fun, their language, their money. <laughs> and their morality, their ethical code. Do we realize what we're asking people to do when we invite them to Jesus? I hope we have compassion. I hope we have compassion. So no, we aren't Jesus, but they said the same things to Jesus. You know, he, he shared about good fruit, or good tree, good fruit, and bad tree, bad fruit. You know, trees can only produce the fruit of what kind of tree they are. And then in verse 38 in Matthew 12, then some scribes and Pharisees said to him, hey, teacher, 
we want to see a sign from you. Show us your fruit. <laughs> You're talking about fruit and good fruit and bad fruit. Show us your fruit. Who, who are you? They, they were the same. They were the same. They were skeptical. And he answers, well, stay tuned, fi- fellas. I've got some undeniable evidence. I'm going to lay my life down. And I'm going to take it up again. That should be proof enough. I have the power of life and death. Only God can do that. Now, can you and I physically lay down our lives and take them up again? I wouldn't advise trying it. But maybe spiritually we should be doing that. That's what the Scripture teaches us. Can I lay down my old life? Can I show people that the the things that used to rule me are dead now? And and that there's there's a new king on the throne here. There's a new set of priorities, a new way of thinking. There's a new way of being. There's a new way of treating people. There's a new way of doing business. I'm a different person than I used to be. Can people see the new life of God in us? I remember a Russell Crowe movie called Proof of Life. It was loosely based on the story of a kidnapped American engineer working in a South American country beset by crime and corruption and drugs and a struggle for power. But he's held hostage in the jungle by men with machetes and machine guns, and they want $3 million for him. And Russell Crowe is the character. He's the negotiator. And he says, before we bring you anything, he says, we want proof of life. That was the first time I heard that phrase. I went, well, that, of course. Why would they work at scrounging up all of this money to get this guy back and get a body bag, right? How do we know you haven't killed him already? And you're, I mean, you're not exactly trustworthy, (laughs) kidnapping people, holding holding them for ransom. How do we know you haven't killed him already and just going to take the money and run? And so they demand proof of life. And quite frankly, I think our neighbors and friends in Sturgeon County want the same from us. I think they want proof of life. I think they want to know that what they're getting themselves into is not dead religion, but there's something real and powerful, and that it's really of God. And I don't even think that's unfair of them to ask of us. Do you? People don't want dead religion. Do you? (laughs) I don't want dead religion. I don't want to go to a dead church. I don't want to go to a place where I don't feel the presence of God. Why would I? I don't want to waste your time this morning. I don't want to waste mine. And so Jesus knows this, and he tells us to provide two proofs. And the first proof is actually in the text this morning. It's signs and wonders. In Mark 16, Jesus says, go and save the world, essentially. In verse 17, these signs will accompany those who have believed. What's our job? Believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe he is who he says he is. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up sermons. They will, if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. And they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. And this is exactly what's happening in the book of Acts. Exactly as planned. And he starts with a, with a lame beggar who everyone knows. Right in Grand Central Station, a man, a man who depends on the goodness of these devout people. He's, he's strategically pretty well situated, isn't he? Imagine if there was a, a, a man who sat at the door of the church and all of you Christians are walking in every, and you like to believe you're good, devout people, you know, kind people. And you, they, he knows that the scripture says you're supposed to take care of the poor. And so he's sitting there every morning with his waiting for you. And you know, he's, he's one of those guys that when you go by, he makes eye contact with you and he looks you right in the eye. So if you're going to ignore him and not give him nothing, he's looking at you right in the eye and you got to say, no, I'm not. Like he makes you say no. Because, you know, if you can just walk by and pretend, oh, I'm looking for something in my pocket or I'm texting on my phone, I can walk by and I never even saw that guy. You know, I don't have to feel guilty. How many of you know that experience? The people who make you uncomfortable and make you say no. 
well, this guy had been there for 41 years. How many times had we walked in and how many times have we given him? Like, surely I don't have to give him something every Sunday. And so when he's not there one day at the temple in this place that his livelihood depends on and he's running around the courtyard, people took notice. (laughs) People knew about this miracle. That's pretty spectacular. And so when this happens in Acts 4-7, when they arrest them for, and isn't it dramatic that they arrest these guys for healing the lame men? You would think that they'd be overwhelmed by the fact that a, a spectacular miracle has taken place. But such is the depth of unbelief and such is the depth of skepticism and doubt. Such is spiritual blindness. But what's the question they ask? They place them at the center in their trial and they said, by what power or in what name have you done this? By a power that's big enough to raise a man who's never walked and have him running around and leaping. Like, we're pretty sure this is a God thing, fellas. Come on. You're, You're asking who did this? It's pretty obvious who did this. No doctor did this. No, there's, no, there's nobody who's ever done anything like this. Proof of life. Show me the evidence. How about resurrection? How about healing the lame? How about the blind hearing? How about salvation and deliverance? These are undeniable evidences of God, the fingerprints of God. He is God. Add that lame man to the list of witnesses who are now proclaiming that Jesus saves and heals. And you can add a man named Dan in our church who was healed from stage four cancer, told to go home and enjoy his final few days with his family, healed and cancer-free. And Marcy, healed of cancer. When the church prays. Now, I'll be the first to acknowledge that I've prayed for many people who have not been healed. But the Bible says if you don't ask, you won't get And we just have to believe. But my part is simple. I'm the natural part. What's my part? I do the asking. All I have to do is ask. And so the first proof of life is the fact that God is at work and doing miracles. And we have to share that testimony. The power of the Spirit was poured out so they would be witnesses of what God was doing. So be a witness of what God's doing in your life. The second proof, though, is not in our text, but I think it's worthy of mentioning. What are we living? What are we selling? A life-changing relationship. That's our standard. We proclaim repentance from sin and that Jesus makes us new creations. So are we? Are we new creations? Or are we willing to be made into? Are you working at it? Are you letting the Lord work in your life? A new man or a new woman? Stephen Curtis Chapman sang a song, wrote a song a long time ago. It's called, uh, I forget what it's called, but the lyrics are, what about the change? What about the difference? What about grace? What about forgiveness? What about a life that's showing you're undergoing the change, the transformation into the new creation? It should be evident among us. If the last two years taught us anything, it's that it's a miracle when people actually get along. How many of you noticed how quickly relationships fragmented through the COVID experience and how, how entrenched people were and the vitriol in the conversations, in the debates? Acts 2, 
describes this community of people as they come to Christ and are filled with the Spirit. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property. And they began planting gardens. And they began egging their neighbors' houses. And they began joining children's ministry. And they began sharing their faith. And they began praying for their neighbors. Right? And day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they fellowshiped together. They loved one another. And they continued taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. These people came together in community. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so right now, just look, look around the sanctuary. Is there anyone you kind of don't like? <laughs> just get up and go to them and say, brother, sister, I'm sorry. I, I need to learn how to like you. You really drive me around the bend. No, maybe don't do that. Do that, do that after service. But here's what I would say. Are there people that rub us the wrong way? Be honest. Yeah. Do you get along with everybody? No. Are there people you avoid? Let me say this. In the body of Christ, don't let that entrench. Don't, don't let it. Figure it out. As iron sharpens iron, so one sharpens another. There's a reason. But make it right. Be the body of Christ. So here's the thing. God can grab people's power, uh, attention by His power. He can do miracles, but to what end? So people come in, they, they hear that there's God's doing miracles at the Father's house, and so they come to be prayed for, and, and then they meet Jesus, and they get saved. Well, now what? Does the dog know what to do when he catches the car? <laughs> so here they are. They came. They're here. They're visiting with you this morning. Three or four new people. What are they going to figure out about you and I? I hope they figure out we really love one another. Because once people get saved, they become a part of the body of Christ. And they become part of the family. And I love that you have five families that you're praying for this week. The whole church praying for the families. Beautiful. This is good. Old things have passed away. Something new has come. We're no longer are divided by whether we're vaccinated or not or by whether we should sing or wear masks or all these sorts of things. We're no longer divided by our politics. We're no longer divided by whether we wear red or blue and orange. I'm still working on that one, but <laughs> you get it, right? So you might feel a little bit of angst about going out into this cynical world and, and the idea that maybe you feel like you have to go out and produce miracles. You know? So for homework on an altar call today, I want everyone to commit to like healing one person, healing one lame person or one blind person or a deaf person, and raising one person from the dead and maybe setting one person free from demon possession. Okay, that's your homework for this week. So I don't know how many of you, I think most of you would just go, that loop, fruit loop, I'm just, you know, just going to leave that one go. But that's not your job. That's the great news about this because it's a supernatural partnership. What's your job? You're just natural. Let God be the super. I was, I was recruited to the ministry by Gordon Sederland out of Bible College, and he was the founding pastor of our church in Grand Prairie. But he told me a story of a, of a, a man in his home community uh, who had become known for his healing gift. The Lord, he just had faith to pray for people. And it was so well known that people in the community would actually go to his house 
and he'd pray for them and they'd get healed. Well, after a while, the church and the leadership of the church was hearing that he was praying for the unsaved and they were getting sick or getting, getting well. And so it wouldn't work very good if they were getting sick. But anyways, they were getting well. <laughs> and so they said, brother, we, we kind of think maybe you should like have them repent or something, you know, before, because they're unsaved and they're, you know, godless heathens, uncircumcised Philistines. And, and so, and his answer was reminiscent of an answer that Jesus would have given. A beautiful, simple response that put everything into focus. His answer to the leaders of, of his church was, well, I think you should have this conversation with God. He's the one who's healing them. He understood the supernatural partnership that God is going to use to save the world. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, access to all of the inheritance of heaven, to all of the power of the resurrected Lord Jesus. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. You know, some of us have been at this for a long time, been walking faith, and I think we can, we leak, because we're human beings, we leak. We can start to doubt and fear. Even John the Baptist, John the Baptist, who, when he met Jesus, proclaimed, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who said, I don't need to be baptized. I, I can't baptize you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, no, permit. He watched the dove come down from heaven. He knew who Jesus was. But later on in his life, he's in a prison cell, and life has battered him and, and beat him, and he's in trouble. And he sends messengers to Jesus saying, are, are, you, are you him? Are you the Christ? Even John the Baptist had a, mo a moment of struggle. And so we leak. But the Scripture talks about Pentecost, and it talks about this mighty event. But the Scripture says, be filled with the Spirit. And the correct translation of it, because we don't really have verbs that fit it very well, it's an ongoing present verb. The best English translation is be continually being filled. So it's not an event, it's a, it's a normal everyday thing that we are constantly leaking and being filled with this heavenly DNA. And so for all of us, I think we could use just a fresh fill-up this morning so that we can do what God wants you to do in Sturgeon County. That's why this house is here. It's a lighthouse, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, reaching a community for Jesus. And He wants to use every one of you. Thanks for joining us today. For more on our messages or information about our ministries, you can visit tfhchurch.ca. We hope you have a great week.